0: We're in Philippians, chapter 2, verse 2. Now, I draw your attention, if you're following your notes, to verse, excuse me, uh, uh, page 11. The only reason I do that is not that my notes are sacred or anything like that, but it helps you to see the relationship between verse 1 and verse 2. Now, if I may just take a minute and review, um, the best way to understand verse 1 is to begin with the word SINCE since these four things characterize you. And we looked at and took them apart. We spent a lot of time on that. Then, verse 2, is the fourfold result. This is what we should see. Because of these first four qualities, therefore we should see, make my joy complete, Paul writes, by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, United in spirit, intent on one purpose. So, I mean, you have, in one word, if you summarize it, unity. If one word summarizes verse 2, it's unity. Unity of mind, unity of love, unity in spirit, and unity in purpose. His word is one, one, one. Uh, one, one writer uh one writer said when Christians are like a clock, like a whole bunch of clocks, they all strike at exactly the same moment. Does that make sense? No. No. Okay. Christians Christians together are like a whole bunch of clocks. Each one's a clock, and they all strike at exactly the same time. That's what it should be. Usually it isn't. Rarely are they all striking at the same time. Now, again, uh, this is the idea. This is is an important set of instructions for Paul to the Philippian church. This is who they are, and that's the first part, verse 1. Therefore, there should be unity. Now, because of verse 3 and 4, there wasn't unity. But this is the ideal. Be of the same mind, same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Now, let's just think through those really, really quickly. I think um, we need to make sure that we don't misunderstand what he's saying. <clears throat> Some trend, I think it's NIV, has it as like-minded instead of the same mind. Um Let's talk a little bit about that. Like-minded, of the same mind. Does that mean Christians should never disagree? No. Okay, Joe, do you want to elaborate on that?
1: No, I take that back. I think... (laughs) (laughs) I think it's... What I'm getting at is I think there's a more... being like-minded does like-minded from eternal po- prospect, having God's best interest in mind. The flip side of that is sometimes, as individuals, we are all thinking that God has different interests.
0: Okay, um, yeah, yeah that, that's not that's not bad. Like-minded or of the same mind is um, the color of the carpet in the church. The color of paint to paint the pastor's office, whether to put roses or peonies in the garden in the front lawn of the church. Like-minded, it's. Uh, I've been in when I, I don't do much of this anymore. But when I would travel, I would uh, be at a church for a conference or something, and they said, "Would you mind while you're here meeting with our board?" well, you know, I kind of say, no, I'm sorry, I don't want to meet with your board. So, you know, it's okay, yeah. And it's really fascinating because almost always the reason they wanted me to talk with them is they were disagreeing over a whole bunch of things. And I remember this just goes back a number of years. Uh, 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 one of the guys on the board said, we're Christians, we should never disagree. That's, that's not what this is saying. So let's make sure we don't, misunderstand the point he's making um, like minded of the same mind it is it's it's in, in a way Joe really nailed it it's seeing seeing the eternal significance of things um,
1: or the lack thereof
0: well oh, oh, walls, or all right I mean yeah I mean <laughs> the eternal significance of things things that are eternally unchangeable to god would be certain doctrinal things theological issues that you just you you, there is no room for disagreement on those there is no room for disagreement when it comes to the nature of god as trinity or the deity and humanity i'm just talking about some of those really bedrock things but the bible says all over the place that you will have disagreement there are things that you're not going to always see in the same uh, the same way the difference is how you settle those conflicts, how you settle those disagreements. But when he's talking about make my joy complete being of the same mind, he's talking about the kinds of things that do bring unity to the church. And what so often we do in local bodies, again, this is a general statement, not, maybe your churches aren't, don't have any of these issues, but we major on the minors. And we get into enormous conflicts over things like the color of carpet, the the style of the carpet, or whether we should do little things like. Should, does the Lord really want us to have coffee in between the services? Well, that's a no brainer Of course, He does. <laughs> <laughs> that is a doctrinal issue. No, I'm, I'm kidding. I mean, so um, the the difference between A group of believers and a group of unbelievers is one of the signs of love in a believer's relationship is you know how to deal with conflict. Do you agree with that?
1: No, we still struggle with it. And we're all in different places in the process, as I always refer to it. (laughs)
0: Let's let's all of us all of us live our lives. It's like concentric circles in our life. Our, the, you want to, you want a concentric circles. First concentric circle, first circle of that it would be your relationship with God. The second would be your family, your relationship. Many of you are married. Your relationship with your spouse and your children. Then your relationship. I'm not sure which would go next in your life, but. Next would be your relationship within the church. Then next would be your relationship within your employer-employee, and then larger friends, neighbors, that kind of thing. Okay, within with, with within the circle of your family, is there conflict? Do you expect conflict? Do you ac- anticipate disagreement? Minor. Yes. There. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not only really sure it's minor either, but there is no, disagreement. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, uh-huh. uh, you know, I. I don't do as much as I used to do a fair amount of pre counseling with a lot of the students as they're thinking about getting married and so on. And I spend three, three sessions, depending sometimes four, depending on what's going on in their relationship, but how to resolve conflict. I mean, the given is you're married to a woman. It's immense. I'll just speak of it. You're married to a woman. There is going to be conflict. And you're going to find, you know, a woman goes through a 30 day cycle, and some days in that cycle, she's really great to be with. Other days in that cycle, she isn't good to be with. I mean, emotionally, she's affected. And the same, I mean, I'm saying, not to be facetious, I'm saying that is the reality of a relationship. So being of the same mind is not saying, I will never disagree with my wife. Because we both know Jesus Christ, we're always, always, always going to see things exactly the same way. That's absolutely ludicrous. As a matter of fact, that's not how God designed it. A man and a woman are totally different. They're physiologically different, emotionally different, left brain, right brain difference, all those things, and they come together, and those differences become the greatest source of strength and stability in their life because where one is weak the other's strong where the other's strong the other one's weak and they just come together and they help balance that out but one of the signs of a mature relationship is you know how to deal with conflict and it's just it's it's how you do that and how you go about that things such as respect and honor and dignity and being a good listener Something that we as men do not excel at. Not good. We do not excel at listening. And then when we communicate, I'm sure you've seen this, there are many studies that show this, but when we're communicating with our wives, or in fact with anybody, but when we're communicating with, with our wives, 7% of meaning is from words we say. The other 93% of meaning is the context. Eye contact, tone of voice, demeanor, history of the relationship—they're all the things. I think I said. So as I walk in the house tonight, and I walk in like this, "I love you, honey." Three, three of the most important words, and she loves to hear me say "I love you." And if I tack on "honey," she's almost in eternal bliss. But just "I love you, honey." Now that. 7% of the meaning I was trying to send was words. The other 93% was communicating to her, what that wasn't genuine. You really didn't mean that. That wasn't sincere. You weren't looking at me. You had your hands in your pocket. You were slouching. The tone of your voice was the most grudging tone I've ever heard you use. Plus, you haven't said that to me in the last seven years. So in what (laughs) sense should I take that seriously? Now I'm exact everything I just said is exaggerating. But to 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 communicate with someone means I'm really sensitive to all those things. My daughter Joanna, and we were with them last night. The most important thing for her, she's 26 years old, she's still important to her, is eye contact. Eye contact is really, really important to her. And if you're not looking at her when you're talking, she's starting to say, Dad, <clears throat> Dad? I'm here. <laughs> I remember when she was a little girl one time she said, "Daddy, I'm talking to you." You know, cuz I was r- looking wow. at something. It was just all of those things. It is important. Yes. You have to figure out what is it with my spouse? What is it with my colleague? My child? That is important in the communication process. Now I'm getting way off the subject in a sense, but I'm trying to make sure you don't misunderstand this. Same mind. Same mind is you have the same priorities God has, it doesn't mean you're never gonna disagree. And in the same the same way, that's maintained by same love. That's agape, it's that that's other centered, I'm I'm serving, I'm thinking of you, I'm not thinking of self, it's not a self centered self because those things are lethal in any relationship. United in spirit. Some translations capitalize the spirit, make it a capital S, which we refer to the Holy Spirit. That's the means of the unity. We're referring to spirit as the center of our will, our soul, our intent, um, our emotion. It's, it's, a, it's a unity that comes from uh, what really makes us tick. And then purpose, united in purpose. That's not difficult. Our fundamental purpose is to bring glory to God. First Corinthians ten thirty-one, Colossians three, sixteen and seventeen. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So that's, there's there's so the unity the unity is not a unity that that we produce. It's a unity that's based on our common beliefs, our our common commitment of love our common emotional commitment and a singularity of purpose. It's the glory of God. Because we are... But we're still... We're, we're, God makes each one of us unique. We're different. With certain skills, certain um, idiosyncrasies, certain, certain dimensions, certain gifts, I mean, all of those things. But when everybody comes together, a good leader... Is going to see what those unique qualities are and how you can blend those together to put a good team together. Uh, if you don't, I mean that's well, anyway, I'm getting again, I'm getting a little off the subject. These are the kinds of things he's talking about. He is not saying you're never going to disagree, you're net you're never going to have different views of opinions. No. Back to the point of a good leader. A good leader is always going to get from the group the sense okay where's where's the commonality and consensus that we can build now so we can go forward but that was not apparently the case with the with the philippians as it was not the case with us so he adds verse 3 and verse 4 do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit but with humility of mind that each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interests of others. Selfishness versus selflessness. Selfishness versus selflessness. So he has an exhortation, he has a command, he has an instruction. What? motivates you to do what you do. You have a choice. And if you've noticed how he put it, selfish ambition or empty conceit or humility. Selfishness or selflessness. Verse 3 and verse 4 are saying exactly the same thing but a little bit of a different approach. You have a choice in life in everything you do. I'm always I'm either doing this for self or I'm doing it for others. I'm either motivated by a self elevating, self ambitious, self centered, self indulgent reason, or I'm doing it for the good of others. Whether it's my wife and my kids, the people that work on my team, my church, etc. 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 So this isn't hard. To understand, it is terribly difficult to live. So I mean, let's go go through this again. Note, it's almost a cadence to it. Do nothing from self, selfishness, or self uh, ambition, or self centered, or self elevation. All of those phrases would fit that translation, or empty conceit. Um, for, for just a second, real quick, what empty conceit, some translations have vain conceit. What does that mean? When I mean, you think of what conceit means, and think of vain or empty conceit, what, what's he driving out there? I have vain glory. Okay, same, same idea. What does that mean? What does that bring to your mind? Bad, bad, (laughs) (laughs) Lord. That's why some translations have vain, some translations have empty, because that vanity is emptiness. Vanity, vain, empty, they're basically the same idea. What's that idea?
1: They're just, If
0: someone, is, if someone is vain, uh, we don't know how to use that word anymore. I can't, I don't think I've ever heard anybody use that in a sentence in the last five years. Say it again?
1: Insanity, like crazy.
0: Nah, could be. That may be an extreme, <laughs> but it could be. But if you just hear somebody, I mean, I, my mother used to use that word. That's why I haven't heard it for so long. But, some, oh, she's vain. What, what does that mean? just care other people think. you how they yeah you're just interested in the facade. This is what other people think of me. It isn't necessarily the real me. Someone that's vain is usually somebody that um, they're really they stand, this is how my mother would use it, they stand in front of the mirror and primp all the time so they look absolutely fantastic going out into the party or the room or the church. And it just, you can just. she's when my mother would say that, that was never a compliment. She's a very vain woman. So vain glory or vain conceit is on the outside, you look pretty good, but on in the inside, it's emptiness. What you see is not what you get. So he's really, when, when he says selfishness, we get that. But vain conceit, vain glory, empty conceit, empty glory, you have to think about that for a minute. And all of and I, I I know I can say that of myself, but I suspect you could do the same. you could be honest and say the same thing. All of us have done things certain times in our lives where we weren't genuine. We were putting on a facade. What you see is not really what you get. So Paul is saying he's calling for a genuineness. What he's calling for here when he deals with selfishness, self-centeredness, vain conceit, is the area of motivation and attitude. And that's meddling. That's meddling in our lives. And we don't want him to do that. So let's make the subject not Paul. Let's make the subject the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is trying to get in under your skin and ask you some questions about motivation. Are you with me? Are you with Paul? Are you with the Spirit of God who inspired this? So he's going, he's going from who we are, verse one. They are statements of who we are in Christ. Those four qualities, in Joe's right, we spent a whole hour last week discussing those. And because those four qualities are true, we therefore, we therefore should be unified in mind, in purpose, in what uh, are the other words? In love, in the spirit, we we should be, because they parallel those those previous four. But often the reason we can't is because what's going on inside, verse three and verse four. So what does Paul do his solution is to offer us a model offer offer up someone that shows us how to do it who is that it's Jesus now before we start this absolutely marvelous passage of Scripture I want to make sure you understand why he brings this up. And if you don't understand the first four verses, you don't understand why he's bringing it up. Who we are, four qualities of verse one. The goal and purpose is verse two, unity. Unity of mind, unity of love, unity of spirit, and unity of purpose. Why do we not often attain that? Because of verse three and verse four, motives, attitudes why we do what we do. So he offers Jesus as an example. Got it? This isn't a disconnect. Okay, now I'm going to do something really theological. He is going to do something theological, but he is offering up the example, the model that we should follow in this. And it's Jesus. Now what I would like to do is read verse 5 through 11. We're never going to get through all this today, but... Because I want to take it apart in a way that hopefully will be meaningful, but in light of what we—excuse me—in light of what we have done in today so far and what we did last week, listen to his words now. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Taking the form of a bond servant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name which is above every name. And at that name every of Jesus, every knee should bow, and those in heaven, on earth, and under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Now, this is a, a magnificent passage of Scripture, loaded with all kinds of theology. But let's not miss the main point. So the main point is, the attitude of Jesus, humility, is the model. The attitude of Jesus, selfless ness is what we should follow the attitude of jesus always thinking of others not thinking of himself and how he does it is actually astonishing now what i would like to do um i, I just don't think we can get through all of this But I think we can do one main thing and perhaps a second thing, because there are three main things I want to do with this. First of all, in dealing with some theology of this, in dealing with how he talks about Jesus, there are three really, 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 really important terms. And all of those terms are in verse 6. terms, that kind of filled out the, the context. It is so important as we go through this, it is so important that you don't um, don't misunderstand what these words mean. And when we're all done with this, and we won't be all done with this until I get back from Israel. <laughs> So in three weeks we'll be sitting here and I'll be tying all the loose ends together. But we'll get started. First of all the word as you see it who although he existed in the form of God. Now when we read that in English we think of form I mean generally that's how we think of English. word, Form it's like it's like a frame of something. It's like a um, it's like a structure of something, a f- the form of a building, the, the 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 form into which you pour concrete. Do you know what I mean? That's why it's okay to translate that. Now, the Greek word is morphē. We get a word morphology from that, but the real sense of that word is essence. It isn't form or outline or structuring, like when my father was in uh, in heavy construction most of his life, he would always be talking about having concrete pours, because he was superintendent of the jobs. And that was always the most tense time for my dad, because if it was cold, there was always the danger, man, we may lose this pour. So you always have all kinds of guards to make sure that the temperature was always above 32 degrees. And he said, we, we, we are not ready to strip the forms. <clears throat> Well, until I went out to the job site, I had no idea what he meant by stripping the forms. But, you know, once you're out there, you see what it is. You know, the concrete's set, it's all you need to take the forms all down. And then I, when I worked in construction, I was the one who cleaned the forms, which is really a great job. <laughs> it's a horrible job, but it paid my way through college, and that was good. So when it says he's in the form of God, it doesn't mean he's just outward the form of God. Oh, there's outward, okay. No, no, he is in his essence, he's God. So do you see what I'm saying? In other words, this, is, this isn't a statement. This is a statement of his very essence as God. Because Whenever you talk about Jesus, whenever you talk about God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, you always have to separate the word essence and person. Now, did I lose you, or are you with me? Essence is what makes God God. Person are the three persons in the Godhead. God is one essence of three persons. Now, I'm not going to go any further with that. All I want you to just make sure you grab a hold of is in his essence, he is God. Just like down in verse 4, in his essence, he is man. He is fully, in every sense of the term, God And he is fully, in every sense of the term, man. Which will cause us to reach a conclusion when we're done with all this. Second, he says, in the form of God, God, the essence of God, he did not regard equality with God. Equality. Equality in essence. As well as equality in purpose. uh, person. So, now again I might have lost you there equality in essence and equality in person equality in essence essence is what makes God God omniscient, omnipresence, omnipotent at equality in person are the Father, the Son and the Spirit equal in the essence of the Trinity? yes they are, they're co-eternal co-equal so Jesus is equal with the Father, equal with the Spirit. But did not regard equality with God something to be grasped. That's a great translation. What does it mean? If you grasp something, if I, if I grasp this marker, what does that mean? Hold on to it real tightly. The only addition to this particular Greek word is hold tightly onto something as a prize you deserve. Now, if I had that, does that add a little meaning to it? Hold on to it tightly like a prize that I deserve. Jesus didn't do that. He didn't say, look, I'm the second person of the Trinity. I'm not going. Spirit, you go. I ain't gone. Now, that, that's almost blasphemy for me to talk like that and to yell. People think I'm preaching in here. But it, it, what, what Paul is saying is here's Jesus. In essence, God, equal with the Father and Son, did not hold on to his rights. As the Son. What did he do? Verse 7 He emptied himself. Now, let's stop for a minute. So, you have three really key terms that you have to define precisely and carefully. Have you defined them precisely and carefully? Because once you truly understand what Paul is saying, you understand even more fully the remarkable nature of the humility of Jesus in coming to to earth. Second, but he emptied himself. Now, I want to come back and talk about that in a minute, but there are three things about his emptying. Three terms or phrases. Taking on the form of a bondservant, nature, form, morphe, they're all the same word, being made in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance of man. <clears throat> Let's take those three apart. First of all, in, the, in the, the, the nature or the form of a slave, a servant, a bondservant. <clears throat> Jesus took on all the characteristics, this, this, is, this is what he's doing, this is why he came. He took on the form, the nature, the essence of a servant. Now that, the, in and of itself, that's a, is a, an astonishing way to put it. Jesus came to serve. And in doing that, he was in the likeness of men. He was a genuine man in every single dimension of humanity. Jesus was human, and then in the appearance as a man, he had all the, the, the appearance. That's not a great way to translate that, because it you want know, to an appearance like a phantom. No, no, no. All of the qualities that makes a man a man, Jesus was. Every characteristic that makes a man a man, Jesus was. So he looked like a man, in all characters and qualities he was a man, and his nature was that of a servant. So let's put it another way. Here is Jesus in glory, in heaven, worshipped by the angels, adored by the angels. And the Father, the Son, and the Spirit... Now, this isn't how it happened. I'm making it up in in this sense. But the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and the Holy Council says we have to start this plan of redemption. Because the rebellion among the human race is becoming self-destructive. It is so bad. So the only way we can do this is one of us has to go. Take his deity, add to it humanity, and die in the place of these rebels. A substitutionary, sacrificial death. And here's Jesus, second person. Again, it didn't happen this way, but I'm making it up to Look, illustrate. So started the
1: time of Adam, even before.
0: Yes, but I, remember, I'm, oh, making, I'm this making this up. This up okay. Yeah, this is, this is before the foundation of the world this happened, but I'm making it up to illustrate the point. So Jesus raises his hand and says, I'll do it. So, in the essence, God, equal in person with the Father and the Spirit, says, I'm not willing to grasp tightly that which I deserve. I'm God. I'm being worshipped. I'm in all my glory. I'll set that aside. That's what emptiness means. I'll set that glory aside and I'll add to my deity the nature of a human being. In every way, I'll be a human. In likeness, nature, essence, and in appearance. All the manifestations of humanity. I will be human. I'll do it. And verse 9 tells us, excuse me, verse 8 tells us why he did it to go to the cross and die.
1: When he says made himself nothing, you know, he made himself, that's by itself, showing that Jesus was God. Because, you know, nobody's going to make himself anything like that except Jesus himself as God. But there is a question I have over here: is how did Paul grasp this very nature of Jesus the way he is seeing it over him? <laughs>
0: Well, I mean, there are two ways to answer that. One, I mean, it's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who is, you know, in effect, uh, superintending what he writes. But I, um, and and I, I don't know if this is absolutely certain, but I think it's probably the case. Paul was a, he was one, brilliant, two, he was a student of the Old Testament. He really knew the Old Testament, and he's putting all of the material of the Old Testament together. Because the Old Testament said all this. It's just all over the place. But he's saying it all in a coherent whole. This is what happened. And so it's it's, it's so important that we don't misunderstand what he's saying, but more importantly that we understand. So one other quick point. When he says he, the, the, the translation I use, it's kanao in Greek, emptied himself. We have to ask, in light of what we study with all these words, the three qualities of Jesus as God, the three qualities of the Incarnation, of what did he empty himself? His omniscience? His omnipotence? Omnipotence means all his power. Well, I don't think we can say that because he walks on water. That's omnipotence demonstrated. He heals the sick. That's omnipotence demonstrated. He raises Lazarus from the dead. That's omnipotence demonstrated. That's power. Omnipresence. He says to Nathaniel, I saw you under the sycamore tree 87 miles away. I saw you. That's omniscience. That's omnipresence, excuse me. Eternal. Sovereign. He orders his creation to do something, and it does it. So what did he empty himself of? Pardon the dangling preposition. Of what did he empty himself is the correct grammatical way to ask the question.
1: His position.
0: uh, Okay. So he ceased to be the second person of the Trinity.
1: Right. No, no, don't. You don't say that. (laughs) No, he was obedient to, to God.
0: Obedient, obedient, to the Father. But,
1: uh, part of it, in other words, he was on he was Earth to fulfill the wishes of the Trinity. Well, you said it earlier, glory, right? Was...
0: Don't you think? Yeah, don't you think that's that's what he emptied himself of, his glory. Do you see at any point in the public ministry of Jesus? You see at any point where momentarily that glory was restored. You think of any event? The transfiguration. Yes, Joel, that's right, the transfiguration. Remember that? Matthew 17 is our fullest account of that. Jesus says, I think it's Mount Hermon, it doesn't matter. You're on a High mountain, the inner circle, Peter, James, and John are with him. You remember what happens? All of a sudden, they see, and the, the Greek word is he was metamorphosized before them. He was was completely changed. And And the description that is given there is exactly the same one you see in Isaiah 6 when Isaiah sees the glory of the enthroned God and Revelation 1 when John sees Jesus in heaven at the beginning of the book of Revelation. It's the same description. So momentarily, the glory of Jesus is restored. And they see it. And then you remember, Elijah and Moses join. On that guy, just think those three guys that they were supposed to see. Luke's account of the transfiguration tells us they were discussing his upcoming suffering and death. That's what they were discussing. The point is for those moments is this,
1: is that?
0: in Luke's Luke. What is what?
1: The, trans, the transformation,
0: transfiguration. The transfiguration. Is Matthew 17. Is that what you're asking? Yes. Yeah, in Matthew 17 is our fullest account of that. Um, And the only reason I'm saying that, I don't want this to be a lesson on the transfiguration. It's just that that helps us to understand that Jesus emptied himself of his glory. That's what he set aside. But when he goes back to the Father, the ascension, it's restored. Momentarily, the transfiguration is restored. So... When you see that and understand that, I mean, you really, that was one of the things. He was equal, Father, Son, He's equal. He had the magnificence of worship. It, the, the, there are a number of times, places in the Bible where it tells us the angels in the cherubim and seraphim worshiping at the throne. Jesus is on earth, and they're spitting at Him. Jesus is on earth, and they're throwing things at Him. Jesus is on earth and they're cursing him. Jesus is on earth and they crucify him. Jesus is on earth and they mock him. And do you remember one of the words of Jesus, phrases really, on the cross? They don't know what they're doing. Forgive them, Father. This is an incredibly magnanimous thing for him to say. So, when you start thinking about I mean, in depth, you start thinking about all that the Apostle Paul is saying here. This is our model. If Jesus is willing to temporarily set all that aside for me and for you, the epitome of selflessness, the epitome of humility, Shouldn't I be able, shouldn't I desire, should I not want, shouldn't I not seek to have that same quality? That's to motivate us, motivate the Philippians. Because then, when he did what the Father wanted him to do, verse 9, he highly exalted him. Gave him a name, and at that name, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that he is the Lord of the universe. Amen. And there's coming, it hasn't happened yet, but there's coming a day when every human being, every angel, evil or good, will bow before Jesus Christ. Some will bow out of love and submission some will bow out of fear and trembling. It all depends on what you do with him. So it's, I, I didn't think we could do it. So we, we really do see, and I was, I'm thankful we could do that, we really do see what the Apostle Paul is trying to do here. Here's who you are, verse 1. Here's how you should relate to one another, verse 2. Here are the reasons why it's difficult to do that, 3 and 4, because you're selfish and self-centered. Here's the antidote to that. Follow the example of Jesus, who in every sense was God, set aside the glory that he deserved as God and added to that deity, humanity, and followed in obedience to his Father, energized by the Spirit, and died. And it was satisfactory, and as Paul says in Romans 1, the Father, through the power of the Spirit, raised him from the dead, showing that the penalty had been paid, and exalted him. Do you think the angels in heaven are sitting around the throne where Jesus, the Father and Son, at the right hand? I wonder who Jesus is. Let's have a debate. Is he a great ethical teacher? Well, one side says yes; the other side says I'm not so sure. No, <laughs> they are worshiping and exalting and honoring him as the the second person of the Trinity at the right hand of the Father, the first person of the Trinity. Which is hard for us to envision that. But there's no debate in heaven as to who Jesus is. It's just worship. So in God's economy of things, the way up is down. God exalts the humble. He brings the proud down. Any examples of that from history? Study 5,000 years of recorded human history. And you and I could make a list, and we could we would not end that list before we all would collectively and individually die. I mean, there's just there's, there are no exceptions to that. That's the way God does it. He exalts the humble and brings down the proud. All right, now we got an example of humility and selflessness. But in getting an example of humility and selflessness, we did a lot of good theology this morning. We really did. I have three minutes, and you paid for them, and you're going to get them. Three more minutes. Why is it so important to get it right doctrinally with Jesus? Why can't we just say, well, let's just camp on it. He's a good teacher, and he was a good teacher. His teaching was, his ethics were absolutely, uh, Thomas Jefferson, and that's why Jefferson liked it. Jefferson didn't believe in the deity of Jesus. But Jefferson believed that Jesus was a great ethical teacher. Why isn't that adequate? <clears throat> it's true, but why isn't that adequate?
1: Because believing it is just in your head, as opposed to it being in your heart. Which is where why Jesus is it so? Ultimately, judges us from.
0: Well, I, us I, I think that's true. I think that's true, and I don't I think, disagree with that, Joe. What I'm, I'm 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 looking at it from another angle, though. Doctrinally, why is it so important to get it right with Jesus that He's fully God and fully human in one person? Why is it so important to get that right?
1: Judging him as a good teacher is a fact. You know, nobody can deny that. Believing in Him as a Son of God takes faith, and this is what Jesus is asking him to do. And good, this is absolutely. Why this is going to absolutely. Our believe in Him. It doesn't achieve the the reconciliation that He was he, after. Yeah. He He came to die for us so we could be reconciled and be with Him. Right. And if you if you can't get from well, good teacher to my Savior, then you've not. Well, my, that's not you my dear
0: started. brother, why didn't He say, Jim, you die? for these guys? Why isn't that possible?
1: Because
0: I got the same problem you do. And I die for myself, and that's my penalty. The day you sin, you shall be separated from God. God. God wants to rescue me. Your word's the right word. He wants to reconcile me. So why didn't he choose another human being, somewhere else on planet Earth? Because Every single human being through all recorded time has the same problem. And death is the penalty for them and nobody else. So there had to be another way. The only other way was Jesus, the God-man, the second person of the Trinity, adding to his deity, had to be in every single way like you and like me. But without sin. Because if he has sin, he can only die a satisfactory death from himself. But he's not a sinner. Hebrews 2, Hebrews 4, in all ways he's like us, yet without sin. So he has to be completely and fully human to be our substitute, die in our place. Fully and completely God to be our perfect substitute. And that's Jesus. That's what Paul's saying here. His point is not, I'm to explain to you how salvation occurred. That's not what he's explaining here. He's explaining why Jesus is a great model of selflessness and humility. And the theology of the Incarnation is a great way to look at it. That's what he did. But I want you to make sure you're connecting the, the, the what we in theology we call Christology and Soteriology. Another way of saying it, the doctrine of Jesus and the doctrine of salvation, they're inextricably linked together. If you disconnect them, you have an incomplete salvation. You got a problem, and see that's why every worldview wants to look at Jesus as a teacher, or a guru, or a Buddha, an enlightened one. They don't want to look at him as a savior. That's the problem. Because biblical Christianity is sh- is shouting, he's not only a great teacher, he's the savior, and the only way he can be my savior is if he's the God Man. And he is. That's what Paul's just proved to us here. So, I mean, I don't like to get heavy into theology, but it's unavoidable in a passage like this. And so I'm just saying, man, it is really important. Paul talks about in the pastoral epistles, 1st, 2nd, Timothy, and Titus sound doctrine produces godly living. And sound doctrine is the key to godly living. Get it right with Jesus. All right, now I am done. It's a great passage, isn't it? Yeah. Now, when I come back, we'll start with verse 12, which is now okay. What is the implication of this? What does the humble, selfless life look like? And that's what we'll talk about. So, I appreciate your uh, concern and prayers during the week. Oh, you want to have somebody pray? Sorry, I was. Good luck. Go Just feel free to do Oh yeah,
1: we thank you for this time, and we thank you for Jim and individuals that will be traveling into Israel and pray that it would be uh, meaningful not just in a superficial way but in a spiritual mm-hmm. way that affects the heart and soul mm-hmm. and mind of those involved and um, we certainly uh, pray for uh, safety and travel and, and just uh, all these people moving around and all the, the walking and traveling and, and um, so forth that they'll be doing pray for their their physical safety their health uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, just their um, mm-hmm. ability to to kind of keep up and keep pace mm-hmm. and then be blessed by this um, this trip and um, be blessed by um, your word as mm-hmm. they're there are me so many um, historical sites and, uh, and places that uh, where you carried out uh, your miracles and your word and So we just pray for safety and, and, uh, and growth uh, in uh, the people involved. Amen.
0: Thank you, Joel, very much. I really appreciate that.